We're making our way through the book of Daniel. So if you will please turn to Daniel chapter 9 as we begin a new chapter tonight. We'll begin by reading verses 1 through 3. Daniel chapter 9, the Bible says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So we are given the timing here in verse 1. We see this takes place in the first year of Darius the Mede, his reign over the realm of the Chaldeans. He's called here the son of Ahasuerus. If you're wondering, it's not the same Ahasuerus as in the book of Esther. And this is Darius the Mede. Not to be confused with Darius the Persian, who is mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's if I got all that sorted out in my mind. In the book of Daniel thus far, we have seen the reign of the Babylonians and the fall of their empire into the hands of the Medo-Persians. And concerning Babylon, in the book of Daniel, we have recorded for us Nebuchadnezzar's long reign and Belshazzar's short reign, and not mentioned in the scriptures, but mentioned in secular history, is a man named Nabonidus who would have reigned in between. In fact, for a period, Nabonidus and Belshazzar would have been co-regent. And then he went into exile, and Belshazzar took over. But I bring this up to tell you this aligns perfectly with the Word of God, which says in Jeremiah 27, 6 and 7, And now have I given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beast of the fields have I given him also to serve him. And all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son. And so we see that fulfilled. Let's remember how the book of Daniel doesn't flow chronologically through all 12 chapters. The first six chapters are chronological, and they give us the history of the Babylonians and their takeover by the Medo-Persians. And then beginning with chapter 7, the book of Daniel now focuses more on prophecy than history, and we get a reset, if you will, and we begin with the first year of Belshazzar's reign, when Daniel received the vision of those four great beasts, which represented Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And then chapter 8 began in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon, when Daniel received the vision of the ram and the goat, which represented the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. And most believe Belshazzar's third year was his last. And if that's the case, then chapter 5 would have taken place around the same time as chapter 8, but a little bit after because at the end, of chapter 5, that's when Babylon fell. So when we come to chapter 9, we read now, it is the first year of Darius, some say Darius, uh, of Darius the Mede. Then it makes sense that chapter 6 also occurred around this time, and that's when Daniel would have been cast into the den of lions. 
Now, we've talked a lot about the Medo-Persian Empire's rise to power in chapters 2, 7, and 8. And we've seen how the bear of chapter 7 would rise up on one side and that the ram of chapter 8 had two horns. One became higher over time. And this was a picture of how the Persians eventually would absorb the Medes, if you will. It would become one kingdom and the Persians would become more in charge. And I bring this up because we read in verse 1 that Darius was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And so the thought by some is that, and, and this is the opinion that I favor, is that Darius the Mede was installed as king by Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus most likely went back to Persia to conduct business there. Some say he went on to conduct more wars, and that's why he left uh, Darius in charge there over the realm of, of the Chaldeans. But anyway, in time, as we've already covered in chapter 7 and 8, Cyrus would become the sole ruler, and they would just become known as the, the Persian Empire or the Persian Kingdom. And so there's a lot of speculation in all of that because a lot's been lost in history. It's a very difficult time to study if you've ever tried to. Um, the historical records are, are pretty sparse. And, and so it makes it difficult. Some of it's kind of confusing to sort it all out. And so rather than speculate, we'll get back to, <laughs> to the Bible here. V- verse 2, it was in the first year of the reign of Darius that Daniel understood that the number of years uh, Jerusalem would lay in desolation would be 70 years. And he understood by books, by the prophet Jeremiah. And the books are either the various writings of Jeremiah that were coming in letters, because we see in Jeremiah, I, I think I have a verse on this later, he actually wrote a letter to the captives in Babylon. And so those might be called uh, the, the books here. But I'm of the opinion that Uh, Daniel not only had Jeremiah the prophet, he also would have had, I believe, the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of of the Bible, and I I believe he might have even had more, maybe even some other prophets. And and so the reason I I say this is because in verse 10, he speaks of God's laws set before them by the prophets. And then in verses uh, 11 and 13, he mentions what was written in the law of Moses. Now, it could be he's just saying that because... He had learned some things and he knew it by memory. But some of this, it seems like he has those books before him. And and that's my opinion. Um, We're not going to start a new church over that. Amen? Now, I I think it's, obviously he has Jeremiah because we're told that. But I think it's noteworthy to just pause for a second and acknowledge how Daniel was a student of God's Word. He, He read it. He studied it. He was a prophet who wasn't above reading other prophets. (laughs) You ever see preachers that... Anyway. He was a man of God who was a student of the Word of God. Remember what Paul told uh, Timothy, the man of God, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's great advice for every child of God, whether you're called to preach or not. Amen. Matthew Henry stated, um, The greatest and best men in the world must not think themselves above their Bibles. 
We've been blessed in this country to have the Word of God so readily available. Amen. And there's still people that don't have a written Bible in their language. And so we're very blessed. But to whom much is given, much is required. And so we ought to be students. We ought to be studying. We ought to be in the Word of God. We ought to make time to do that. Here's a man in Daniel who was likely a prime minister over... a large section of the largest empire, the the world power at that time. And at the end of chapter 8, we were told how he rose up and he did the king's business, and yet he still found time to read and study God's Word. So what's our excuse? It's usually just a lack of discipline. I'm not being ugly. (laughs) And since it's the end of the year, I'll use this as an opportunity to encourage us all to maybe just challenge you, I guess, to read your Bible through this year. Uh, For an average reader, it's not that hard. It's about 15 minutes a day. And so if you could just do it nonstop, it'd take you 3.8 days. I don't recommend that, okay? (laughs) Brother Foley and I were talking before church. Don't just read it to be reading it. you got to get something out of it. But anyway, uh, I do encourage everyone to do that. But back to Daniel here. Remember in chapter 1, hey, listen, you're going to miss out on pie and coffee. It's special pie and coffee. It's Baptist coffee. Church coffee. (laughs) It better not be Folgers. Is that what you said, sis? (laughs) Yeah, I'll have heartburn for four days straight drinking that junk. All right, anyway, if you love Folgers, I'm on your side, amen? Oh, anyway, remember in chapter 1, the Babylonians came against Jerusalem and besieged it. And they began to carry away certain captives from Judah. Uh, They were those of the king's seed and the princes. And, of course, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were all part of that first wave of captives. And from studying Jeremiah the prophet, Daniel understood how the Babylonian captivity was the last 70 years. And now with the Babylonians defeated, it's clear that those 70 years should be ending here very soon. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. And so Daniel's reading Jeremiah. And he would have read also in Jeremiah 29.10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. And that's a passage that was written in a letter that Jeremiah sent to the captives that Daniel would have been a part of. And, and so Daniel has all this, and, and, and the seeking Jews in captivity, obviously there would have been some who maybe didn't care as much, but those who were still seeking, they knew Jeremiah's prophecy could be trusted as being from the Lord because all the false prophets had been proven wrong. <laughs> there were prophets saying, it's okay, well, we're not going to come to the sword, we're going to have peace. Uh, well, they did come to the sword. The, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And they were given this false vision that 
everything was going to be okay. And, and if you're so interested, you can read that in Jeremiah 14 and 23. But we see how being a student of God's Word, as he's reading this and digesting this, that when we study the Word of God, it brings us comfort. Well, how is it bringing comfort? Because we are reminded how our sufferings may last for a season, but it's not going to be forever. It may be for a lifetime. But what is our life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and it vanisheth away. And so it brings us comfort when we get in the Word of God and and we know these things. We we can also see in verse 2 how God would be the one to bring the captivity to an end. It says, He, speaking of the Lord, would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Remember from chapter 1 and verse 2, it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. God gave them to the enemy to be taken into captivity, and God would be the one to bring an end to the captivity And this also would be a comfort because it affirms God is always in control. He allowed it and He's the one that's going to end it. And so as we study the Word of God, we're comforted by these things, I hope, and we understand that our God is in full control. In in verse 3, we see how the knowledge of, of God's plans as laid out in His Word, it doesn't excuse us from praying, but it should cause us to pray even more earnestly. And I'm not sure I understand all that. I'm just, I I was thinking about John, the Apostle John in the Revelation laid out all these things about the Lord's coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Uh, Went ahead and prayed for it, amen. Uh, Well, God's going to do it. Why pray for it? God has a way of working all this together. But He says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and with sackcloth and ashes. And so we find that Daniel was not only a student of God's Word, but that he is also a man of prayer. And can I just remind you, you cannot be one without the other. If you are seeking to understand the Word of God, then you can't do that apart from the author. And so if we're going to study God's Word, we need to be praying to God. Because you won't rightly understand a spiritual book without the Spirit's help. Spiritual things are spiritually understood. Spiritually discerned. And for this reason, I'm not interested in receiving any man's opinion on the interpretation of the Word of God who hasn't been born again because he doesn't have the Spirit of God indwelling him. Paul said this, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. He also wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. It's alarming to me how many these days are looking to unsaved sources for their Bible interpretation. If you're born again, you already have the greatest teacher indwelling you. 1 John 2.20 and then verses 26 and 27 say this, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you, 
And he's talking about those who possess the spirit of Antichrist. I think I mentioned that here in just a minute. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, understand that passage is not saying that we're not to learn from teachers. That's not what it's getting at at all. After all, John is teaching them as he's writing that. But it has to do with the ability of the child of God who has the Spirit of God to recognize what is false and what is true. Our spirit testifies to God's spirit that we are His. And when we hear something that's just a little off, it it makes uh, us go, what? I'll never forget, I'd been out of church for um, too long (laughs) uh, after I joined the military. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. And, um, but my, not my supervisor, but I think my supervisor, supervisor, he invited me to go to church. Uh, Master Sergeant Derek Brown, amen. Went to his church. Sorry, I had to do that because it, it was Pentecostal church, and, and, and it was on. And, and as soon as I started hearing some certain gibbering and jabbering, I thought, this ain't right. I wasn't grounded, but what was happening? The Spirit of God was saying, something's off here. What, what is that? You have an unction from the Holy One is what I'm saying. And, and so the idea of what John was getting at is, is no, <laughs> no, I don't need to go to church because I, you know, I don't need anybody to teach me. No, that's not what it's saying. It's just saying you'll be able to recognize uh, the difference in, in what is wrong and what is true. And, and so allow your sources in rightly dividing the word of truth to be the Holy Spirit in your personal study time and a spirit-filled local church in your corporate study time. Because Paul made it clear in Ephesians chapter 4, he's gifted the local church with pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. And so we're not to just uh, find a loophole that says, well, no, I don't have to listen. <laughs> And so as your pastor, I, I urge you, just be careful in looking to any source who does not possess the Spirit of God to begin with because there are many winds of doctrine that are blowing out there seeking to carry you away from the truth. Well, here's Daniel. He understands 70 years would be accomplished in the Babylonian captivity. And it makes him go to the Lord in prayer. And we see he set his face unto the Lord God. We know from chapter 6 that Daniel's normal posture would have been kneeling in prayer with his window open facing Jerusalem where the temple once stood. But more importantly, we see here, he sets his face toward God, toward the Lord. 1 Kings 8, uh, 46 through 50 I don't know that I have time to read all of this, so let me just hit the highlights here. This is Solomon dedicating the temple. And, and as he's praying, he mentions if your people sin and they're taken into captivity and all those things, that if they're carried away captives into the land of the enemy and they make supplication unto thee, wherever they've been carried away captive, and that they pray unto thee toward their land, the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I have built for thy name, then hear their prayer and their supplication. Anyway, you can go back and read that. But Daniel really just obeying what Solomon had mentioned there at the dedication of the temple. But Daniel, he sets his face unto the Lord God. And this is letting us know, and listen now, let's start getting some more application. This is letting us know that this is a very serious time of prayer that Daniel is entering into. He sets his face toward the Lord God. Do you remember how it says Jesus, he set his face 
to go unto Jerusalem. Resolute, determined. Um, it, it's purposeful. This, this prayer is with a specific intent. And Daniel has cleared his schedule to be alone with God in prayer. No distractions. Amen. He turned off his cell phone. You understand all that, right? I mean, he's getting along with God. I'm concerned that most of our, our prayers, they are reactionary. Most of us pray as we react to situations that come up throughout the day, which is necessary at times. Don't misunderstand me. But even Jesus in the model prayer said, pray that you enter not into temptation. And so there should be some of that prayer. But what I'm saying is, how many of us act? You understand there's a difference between reacting and acting? How many of us act when it's uh, time to pray? To purposefully set our face toward God. Second Chronicles 7.14, it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal, heal their land. Uh, David said this in Psalm 27, 8, When thou said, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. And I'm just trying to tell you that what's happening here with Daniel, this isn't some prayer that he's engaging in as he's going about his day, as he's conducting the king's business. I think you ought to do those things. Amen. You ought to be in continuous prayer if you can. And, and so, this is purposeful. And how often are we guilty of just casually throwing up prayers Godward without much fervency and without much depth? Daniel set his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so Daniel was not only purposed in his prayer, but he was prepared for prayer. Daniel wanted to enter this prayer time as right with God as he could and with the right attitude. He, he, he's prepared by fasting. And fasting in God's Word is always talking about abstaining from food. Biblical fasting is not giving up some time-consuming fleshly habit which we have developed out of a lack of discipline. I'm not against you if the Lord's called you to fast from TV or cell phone. That's not a biblical fast. That's all I'm saying. A biblical fast is no food. It's meant to be an affliction. Now, I know for some of you missing your favorite show, that might be an affliction. Amen. And, and so fasting is, is denying ourselves food. That's what Daniel's doing here. He has afflicted himself. In addition to fasting, Daniel put on sackcloth, which is coarse. Most tell us that it is goat's hair, usually black sackcloth, and it, it's uncomfortable as it's on the skin. And so it's representative of those who are in mourning or in, in times of fasting. And so, and as we see at the end of verse 3, the wearing of sackcloth with, 
was often accompanied with the putting on of ashes, which is where they would cast ashes and it would come upon the head. And so this is an outward sign of what is taking place in his heart. This was an act of humiliation, a reminder of what we are before God Almighty, which is nothing. And great sinfulness requires great humiliation. In Genesis 18, 27, And Abram answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Daniel's posture, the, the ashes, it's a reminder. I'm nothing before God. I don't deserve for Him to hear me. And so I hope you have the picture here. Daniel is purposeful. He sets his face toward God. He was prepared beforehand through fasting. He was humble. He understood himself to be unworthy to come before God in prayer apart from God's mercy and grace. And and Daniel was very deliberate. And so I just want to encourage you tonight, have a very purposeful prayer life. Have a deeper prayer life if you don't already. Uh, Set aside time where you get alone with God. Not just reactionary, but, but you're acting And set your face towards Him. Go before God in humility. We go before God on the merits of Christ and His blood. Lastly, in verse 3, Daniel set his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication. The prayer here mentioned is talking about intercessory prayer. His supplications. Those are to entreat God for His mercies. And we'll see both of these evident in Daniel's prayer, which I want to read to you now in verses 4 through 19. Look at what it says. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from Thy precepts and from Thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near, and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belong confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against Thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, uh, forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against Him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us by His servants the prophets. Yea, all Israel have trespassed, Trespass thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem, as, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us, yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn our iniquities and understand thy truth. 
Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten thee renowned as at this day. We have sinned, we have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness. I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Wow, there's a lot we can unpack in all of that. Uh, There's a lot we could say, but we'll see... Uh, how the Lord leads here. But I want to tell you, if you want to get serious about praying for our nation, try using that as a model. You see how he prayed for his his city, uh, his people? Uh, Just a thought there. In the beginning of verse 4, Daniel's prayer is personal. As he prays unto the Lord, my God. The Lord, my God. Can you say that tonight? Do you belong to God? Can you say He is your God? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Have you been born again into God's family? If not, God is mighty to save. Amen. And I want you to notice the different spellings of the word Lord in verse 4. Some modern versions are doing away with this, unfortunately. But in your Old Testament, when you see the Lord, all caps, it is a reference to Jehovah. When you see the Lord, capital L, small o-r-d, it is a reference to Adonai. Sometimes it would be Adon. And you need to look for Christ when you see that spelling in your Old Testament of Lord, capital L, small o-r-d. Perhaps the most obvious passage because of how Jesus will translate it in the New Testament comes from Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord, all caps, said unto my Lord, capital L, small r d, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Well, Jesus takes that passage and he says in Matthew 22, 41 through 45, well, the Bible says this, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And and so Daniel, he prays unto the Lord Jehovah, the self-existing one, and he prays to my God, Elohim, the the supreme God, and he prays through the Lord Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is how we pray today. We pray to God through Christ. And we see how both Adonai and Jehovah are one God. Daniel prayed, O Lord Adonai, 
the great and dreadful God. And so we understand Christ is God. Amen. I mean, this is fascinating when you get a hold of this. What it did for me, and it might have been the time when we first showed up here and Pastor was doing a Christ in the Old Testament series, and it just made the Old Testament blossom. And all of a sudden, I was seeing things I'd never seen before. And so if you get a hold of that, it'll help you as you read and study your Old Testament. And so now we find that Daniel is reverent in his approach to God. He understands he is the great and dreadful God, or he is one to be feared and revered. We are not praying to the man upstairs. We are not praying to the big kahuna. We are praying to God Almighty. And He is to be feared. Remember in the model prayer what the Lord taught us. Hallowed be thy name. We ought to have a reverence for God. Understand who we are praying to. I'm not saying there's times you can't go to Him casually. I think Peter had it figured out when he was sinking. Lord, save me. But understand what I'm saying. We, we need to understand in these times that we're purposeful. Take some time to address God for who He is. Well, there, there's so much here in this prayer. I think most of this is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, let me hit some highlights here. Remember the context of Daniel's prayer is his knowledge that the 70 years are going to be accomplished. They're drawing near very soon. And therefore, as Daniel confesses the sinfulness of his nation, it appears as though Daniel didn't want their sinfulness to cause God to delay his deliverance any longer. And so Daniel, he makes his confession, and he confesses his sins. We won't get to that verse tonight, but he's confessing his sins as well. We'll see later on next time. But he's confessing the sins of his people. In in verse 5, he acknowledges their sin, their iniquity, their wickedness and their rebellion by departing from God's precepts and judgments, meaning they had departed from God's Word. Not only that, but in verse 6, they didn't listen to the prophets. They were speaking in God's name. And for this cause, in verse 7, there was confusion. And as a result of their trespass against God or the fact that they had went beyond God's boundaries, uh, in verse 8, he mentions their confusion again because of their sin. In verse 10, they didn't obey the voice of God, His Word, or His prophets. In verse 11, all of Israel transgressed the law and departed from the law and didn't obey the law, and as a result, the curse of God was poured upon them. And they were forewarned of all of this uh, through Moses. In verse 12, God brought upon them a great evil, namely the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the carrying away of the captives. And, And this sentiment is reiterated again in verses 13 and 14. And then we continue to read in verses 14 through 16 how they didn't obey God. They sinned. They did wickedly in God's sight. God made them a reproach to all of the nations around them. I think you're getting the point. They rebelled. They disobeyed. And all of this is coming upon them as a result. And so what we find is that there is a cause and an effect, if that's the right verbiage. There is a cause and effect. They, they turned against God, and so God turned them over to the enemy. They rebelled against God. God allowed them to reap what they sowed. And so it is today. We, we can choose our sin, but we cannot choose the consequences. And we need to understand God. And He says, if you do this, I'll do this. Read Deuteronomy 28 sometime. 
If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be cursed. And so I'm just trying to highlight here that Daniel's pointing out, we, we deserved what we got. We, we rebelled. He was just probably a teenager when all that happened, when they were carried away anyway. And so he wasn't even alive for a lot of what he's talking about. But he said, we, we have rebelled against God. And all of that may seem pretty harsh, that God would do this. But let's go back through this prayer real quick. In verse 4, Daniel also acknowledges God is a covenant-keeping God who extends mercy to those who love and obey Him. In verse 7, God is still righteous. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto Thee. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. Verse 14, for the Lord our God is righteous in all His works which He doeth. Verse 16, according to all Thy righteousness. Verse 18, Daniel recognizes God's great mercies. Because of who God is, Daniel cries out to God that he would remove his anger and his fury. And and he pleads in verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do and defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for the city and thy people are called by thy name. And and what I find here is that while God will bring judgment and chastisement to His people, it does not change the fact that God is good, that He is righteous, that He is merciful, that He is forgiving. We just need to learn to acknowledge what caused His judgment to come upon us and confess it. What does that mean? Agree with God. Confession, you're agreeing what God calls sin is sin. And acknowledge that He is just in all His ways. See, I don't like it. Doesn't matter if you like it. God is just. I don't understand it. I'm learning this the hard way. It doesn't matter if you understand it. And don't miss the fact that God brings chastisement for our good. It is to bring us back in line with Him and His Word. And we know over in Hebrews it is done so that we may yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so my hope tonight is that we can all agree the blessing or the curse from God are a direct result of our own choices. We have choices that we make in this life. And the sooner that we are broken, the sooner that we align ourselves with God and His Word, the sooner we will experience His mercy, and the sooner we can have joy and peace restored in our heart again. Can I tell you that a life lived in rebellion to God is a miserable life. I know what the Bible says. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but it's only for a season. And to the child of God, there is no joy, there is no peace living with a guilty conscience that that we have soaked ourselves in sin and somehow expect God to just bless us. May we confess our sins before God in earnest, heartfelt prayer. 
And in so doing, may God cause His face to shine upon us again so that we may enjoy the blessings of God. And so I hope this is an encouragement to you tonight to understand we need a deeper prayer life, number one. Right? We need to get serious about prayer. But also understand, if you're going through it, just examine yourselves and see if it's not because you're doing something you shouldn't do. Hey, man. Now, sometimes God will bring stuff anyhow. That's another message for another time. But Daniel here confesses, no, we, we, we reap what we sowed. I'm out of time. Let's pray.